As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray for illumination. Holy wisdom, speak again your liberating word to us today by the power of your spirit poured into our hearts. Help us to hear and to respond to your call to love and serve. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Genesis. The child Isaac grew, and on the day of weaning, Sarah and Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah noticed that the child that Hagar, the Egyptian, had born for Abraham, playing with her child Isaac. She demanded of Abraham, send Hagar and her child away. I will not have this child of my attendant share in Isaac's inheritance. Abraham was greatly distressed by this because of his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, don't be distressed about the child or about Hagar. Heed Sarah's demands, for it is through Isaac that descendants will bear your name. As for the child of Hagar, the Egyptian, I will make a great nation of him as well, since he is also your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham brought bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. Then, placing the child on her back, he sent her away. She wandered off into the desert of Beersheba. When the skin of water was empty, she set the child under a bush and sat down opposite him about a bowshot away. She said to herself, don't let me see the child die, and she began to wail and weep. God heard the child crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. What is wrong, Hagar? The angel asked. Do not be afraid, for God has heard this child's cry. Get up, lift up the child and hold his hand, for I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went to it and filled the skin with water, and she gave the child a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became a fine archer. He made his home in the desert of Paran, and his mother found a wife for him in Egypt. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our sermon today is the third in our current series entitled Sacred Community. And through the stories of the Old Testament book of Genesis, we've been exploring the nature of sacred community a community devoted to the divine, to the ways and purposes of God, whose name is love. To recap, as Adam did last week, where we have been so far, we've affirmed that sacred community is not about having perfection, communities full of perfect people. It is about us living together in the beauty of our blemishes. We affirm that Sabbath-keeping is part of sacred community, 
For without that sacred rest and regular pausing, our relationships with God and with others, ourselves, and with all creation cannot live and thrive and grow very easily. And last week we saw how brokenness is a dominant theme in the stories of Genesis, that it is part of sacred community of God's finite humans, and how we are created to share our brokenness with one another in service to the healing and wholeness of the whole. So today we consider how unity is nature of, second, of sacred community and how who or what we choose to serve will either build up that unity or serve to tear it down. To help us understand what is going on in our passage today, a quick review. Abraham and Sarah are considered to many, by many to be the father and mother of our faith. And midstream in their story in the Bible, they have a name change. They were Abram and Sarai. So for ease, I will just call them Abraham and Sarah. God made a covenant with Abraham and Sarah to be their God and for them to be God's people. God blessed them with a promise telling Abraham under the starry sky that his descendants would be more numerous than all the stars in the heavens. Abraham and Sarah would give birth to a people. Through them, the Hebrew nation would be born. But for this to happen, of course, they needed to bear a child. And they grew older and older and still no child. But God promised them that even so, they would conceive. And more time passed, still no child. And growing part concerned, perhaps part impatient, part mistrusting God's designs, Sarah comes up with a plan to give her Egyptian slave girl or maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham as a wife, with hopes that Hagar would conceive and that a family could be gained through her for Sarah and Abraham. Now, Sarah's proposal was an acceptable practice of that time. And she thought God had not specified which line God would make a great nation for Abraham. It could be through Hagar. Well, Hagar did become pregnant by Abraham, and Sarah's plan seemed to be working. But once Hagar knew she was pregnant, she lost respect for her mistress, Sarah. And this disrespect was deemed as harassment by Sarah, her mistress, and she began to treat Hagar harshly. Sarah's response again was not an unaccepted or unexpected response in the culture of that time, just so we know. But it was harsh enough that Hagar ran away and fled to the wilderness in distress. So in our passage today, that is where we find Hagar alone, pregnant, distraught in the wilderness. For the second time, we find that in the story today. The first time is in chapter 16. And as God looks upon her, an angel of the Lord finds her there, has heard her cries, and inquires what she's doing in the wilderness and listens to her whole story. The angel of God told her to stop running, to go back, saying that though the time is challenging, she would be the mother of many children, too many to be counted. 
Hagar received from God a blessing that resembled the one promised to Abraham. The angel of God then said to her, The son in your womb will be called Ishmael, meaning God hears. For God has heard the cries of your distress due to injustice. And then we have a remarkable response from Hagar. Hagar, a woman of no repute at all, no authority, no status in her world, becomes the first person in our scriptures to dare to give God a name. She names God Elroy, meaning God who sees. For God truly saw her and came near and helped her. Well, Hagar did return to her mistress, Sarah, as God directed, and she gave birth to Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, while Sarah still remained barren. But the God who sees and hears came to Abraham again with the promise that a son would be born to him at 100 years old and to 90-year-old Sarah, and that he would be called Isaac, which means laughter. Laughter, a very appropriate response of awe and joy in the face of the miraculous. And both Abraham and Sarah laughed, actually, when God told them this news at separate times. So to our passage today, God's promise was fulfilled. Isaac was born. But the joy of this miracle, the promise that elicited that joyful laughter from Sarah and Abraham that led to the name Isaac, came to a halt for Sarah. While at the banquet celebrating her son Isaac's weaning, Sarah saw Isaac's half-brother Ishmael playing, and she heard Ishmael's laughter. And that laughter to her ears was a threat to her designs for her son's life. Ishmael, as Abraham's firstborn, had inheritance rights. Sarah would not and could not allow her Isaac's rights to be usurped by the child of the outsider and slave, Hagar. So once again, we find Hagar now with her son Ishmael in distress in the wilderness, having been forced out of that community and to live with life in peril, not knowing how their future would turn out. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann points out in his commentary on this passage that all the primary characters in this story agree on the preciousness of Ishmael. God, the angel of God, Hagar his mother, and Abraham his father. All but Sarah, who due to her vested interest for her son Isaac is closed off to the reality of Ishmael's preciousness. She cannot see that his inclusion in God's sacred community is God's divine design. She's blind to the way forward. She cannot see how the unity of family and community intact in this way can possibly be good for Isaac and therefore for her own fortune, her own honor. I invite us to pause to consider right here, what is motivating Sarah to want to banish Hagar and Ishmael from the community? Is it the ways of God who creates sacred community? 
Or are the worldly ways informing her actions and clouding her vision? Is she operating from a foundation of God's promised faithfulness and love? A love promised to be large enough to include the whole universe? Or has Sarah succumbed to the message of the world that there's only so much good to go around, that there may not be enough for you or yours, so stay vigilant, stay defensive, let your fear keep you alert so you don't miss out on those false securities of wealth and status and honor. It seems to me that Sarah has succumbed to fear, which then informs her choice of words and her actions, much of which serve to fracture unity, to exclude, to prevent love from flourishing, and so to diminish sacred community. I wonder if we pause, if we can relate to Sarah. Can you think of a time when fear got the best of you and suddenly you find yourself changing your mind and deciding the fate of someone or heading yourself in a direction you had not planned, but you saw no other way to feel secure than taking matters into your own hand and making decisions based on the world's false message of scarcity rather than on God's promise of abundant provision and continuous presence. Fear of losing dignity in the eyes of family, friends, boss, or colleagues. Fear for a child's welfare. Fear of the future. Can we relate to any or all of these? Did we find it hard, almost impossible to pause and ask God for guidance, which it seems Sarah did, because our need to know that everything would be okay was so big right now. And then as we considered the outcome of Sarah's choice, how did our choices serve to grow love, to sustain unity, to flourish sacred community, or did they serve to do the opposite? Did someone get left out due to our actions? Was our community strengthened or weakened? Brueggemann writes of this story, of the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael, that God cares for the outsider that tradition wants to abandon. Now he's speaking of the tradition at that time. But does not our society have tradition that wants to exclude and abandon still today? Yesterday, Knox Church had a presence in the Cincinnati Pride Parade. A group of us gathered with our banner and rainbow t-shirts in support and solidarity and rejoicing with and alongside our LGBTQ plus community members. A community that knows intimately the sense of abandonment that tradition can impose, and the cost of a breakdown of God's intended unity when fear takes over and grows hatred, which grows injustice, which easily leads to violence, exclusion, and for many, even death. There were over 200 registered groups who marched, and since we were number 141, we had a lot of time standing 
on the 7th Street Bridge before the parade actually began to move in our sight. So we had time to converse. Some who had been going to the Pride event from the beginning in Cincinnati shared with encouragement and hope and joy and amazement how much the parade and festival has grown in a relatively short amount of time. How the numbers of those showing up to celebrate life and God's diversity and unity and inclusion has flourished, giving so many great hope. And the joy of that gathering, that whole parade was palpable. Also gathering with us was our Jewish community friends. They marched alongside us wearing t-shirts that read, spread hummus, not hate. And this too is a community that knows very well the price of a breakdown of sacred community, about being victims of others' fear that leads to hatred, exclusion, injustice, and death. And they invited us to join them as they held a pre-parade worship right there on the bridge. They led us in singing the Shema from our Hebrew scripture, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. We sang in celebration of the unity of our God, our one God, who builds up sacred community among us with love and understanding as we walk alongside one another, building up relationships, building up unity and sacred community. Also, while we waited what seemed like hours in the heat on that bridge, many of us were stood along the bridge railing over the highway below that was full of speeding motorists passing by. And those up top were waving and looking down while those below from the big semis to the motorcycles and everything in between, we could see people waving and honking their horns and cheering us on as they looked up and saw floats and rainbows and smiles the whole stretch of the bridge. All signs of God's radical, inclusive love and solidarity. And speaking with a friend yesterday who has opportunities to share in conversation about all that's making the news these days in our culture, about the rights of LGBTQ plus community, especially transgender rights and care. And she hears people say that they just don't understand it. And they don't understand being gendered other than their own way of being gendered in the world, how God created them to be. And if you don't understand, it can be difficult to accept. And she at times asks them, do you need to understand? And as she shared that story, it led me to think about Sarah. I wonder if Sarah's fear was rooted in her inability to understand the ways of God. Thinking that if she could only know how this will unfold for her son and herself and her descendants, everything would be okay. So let me take the first steps, perhaps she thought. But friends, our God is holy mystery. If we understood God, that wouldn't be God. God is not meant for our full understanding, but is meant that we would know how much we are loved and cherished. 
So can the faithfulness, the promised presence, the devotion, the eternity of God's love be enough for us today in face of all the things we cannot and do not understand? In the year 2011, New York City, the Department of Transportation launched a curbside haiku project with the artist John Morse. And John set about creating art and making street signs, all in service to safety in that community because of all the ways that things go awry in a big bustling city when you have pedestrians and taxi drivers and cars and every other kind of movement going on on the city streets. This was a campaign to educate the public about safety in the streets through public art. And John Morse created the eye-catching traffic signs and accompanied with each was a haiku. And the one that caught me says, remember, every move you make matters. Every move we make matters. The goal of this project was to bring awareness of the critical responsibility to New Yorkers of their shared responsibility among pedestrians, cyclists, motorists, and keeping the streets of New York safe. Shared responsibility. That sounds like sacred community making right there. The messages were meant to build up awareness of one another, to have each other look up from our goal of getting from A to B and pay attention. Who's around us? Are we acting and speaking and responding in ways that serve for the good of the whole, the building up of community? So I think about John Morris's haiku. I think about Sarah and ourselves. And the invitation I receive, one of many from this story today, is can I pause long enough today before reacting to something that might be distressing today or disturbing or annoying? Can I pause long enough to consider, will my next move, word, thought, serve to build up sacred community and unity or to tear it down? If every move matters and affects something and someone, there's power in that pause to let God in, ask for guidance, ask for the way forward in my lack of understanding, and then trust on the promises of God. All the naming that goes on in the scripture, even Hagar giving God a name, God giving these children names that mean something, and whose names still inform us today. Remind me of Isaiah, through whom God said to all of us, I have called you by name. In fact, your name is written on the palm of my hand. So precious are you in my sight. So do not be afraid. I am with you, and I have put you into this global, human, sacred community and family. I am faithful. I want to close today with a prayer based on Psalm 106, found in a book called Psalms for Praying by Nan Merrill.
which speaks to the invitation that hopefully some of us are heeding today, or whatever invitation you are getting from the Spirit, may this serve to bless you as well. Let us pray. Awaken us to the oneness of all things, to the beauty and truth of unity. May we become aware of the interdependence of all living things and come to know you in everything and all things in you. For as we attune to your presence within us, O God, we know not separation, and joy becomes our dwelling place. Amen. One more thing from yesterday. I saw some t-shirts that inspired me. One simply said, love is love. Another said, love is always equal. And to me, that reminds me that love is equal and unifying, as is our God. Thanks be to God. Amen.